Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. On this episode of Most Notorious, an 1897 expedition to find the South Pole leads to death, despair, and incredible heroism. They tried to throw him a line, but uh, eventually they looked to the side of the ship and they saw that he was lying on his back and foaming at the mouth and his face was dark and he had died. And uh, this was before they'd even made landfall in Antarctica. And uh, it, it cast a pall on the rest on the rest of the rest of the expedition. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Great to have you here with me. If you really love the Most Notorious Podcast, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash mostnotorious. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash mostnotorious. Thank you in advance. So, it is so great to have as my guest today, Julian Sancton. He has been a senior features editor at Departures Magazine, where he wrote about travel and culture. His work has appeared in major magazines like Vanity Fair, Esquire, and The New Yorker. And he is here to talk about his brand new book called Madhouse at the End of the Earth, The Belgica's Journey into the Dark Antarctic Night. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Eric. Yes. So where did you first get the idea to write a book about this ill-fated expedition to the Antarctic? Well, um, it was about 2015, and I was sitting at my desk at Departures, uh, killing time by reading a copy of The New Yorker. And uh, I was flipping through, and I found this article that seemed really interesting about... uh, how NASA is is planning missions to Mars uh, by, uh, among other things, having these sort of simulations in suitably Martian type environments on Earth, like the the, the surface of uh, of a Hawaiian volcano. But the very beginning of this story it was it was unexpected. It was it was a three or four paragraph summary of a polar expedition from 120 years ago that uh, went horribly awry. Uh, the the ship left from Belgium. It was a scientific expedition and was stuck in the ice where they became the first men to, in, to endure the cruelties of an Antarctic winter. And uh, I found this just uh, irresistible. The, these men were, were, were ravaged by scurvy uh, and, and some went insane. And to me, this, this idea of insanity in the poles had, was like something out of Edgar Allan Poe or uh, Coleridge or, uh, you know, the, the HP Lovecraft. And when I, I kept reading and it mentioned that, uh, the physician on board was a man named Frederick Cook. He was an American. Uh, and he came up with these ingenious interventions that saved most of, but uh, certainly not all of uh, his shipmates' lives and, and helped extricate the ship from the ice in, 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 uh, in, in a great escape plan. And uh, also on board was a man who, even if you know very little about Antarctic exploration, uh, you probably would have heard his name, Roald Amundsen, the great Norwegian explorer. 
who would go on to discover the South Pole or to, to reach the South Pole. And he was an apprentice on this ship. So all these elements, the, the fact that there's this heroic anti-hero uh, in Frederick Cook, I, I should say that Frederick Cook would, was, is remembered today, if he's remembered at all, as the man who lied about attaining the North Pole first. So there's the guy who lied about the North Pole. There's the guy who actually reached the South Pole. There's insanity at the poles. There's a ship caught in ice, the first winter spent in the Antarctic. It was just too good to be true. It, it felt so cinematic. So I called my friend who, fittingly enough, is a screenwriter. And I told him, uh, you, you've got to write this as your next screenplay. And he says, you know what, in Hollywood, nobody does anything original anymore. It's got to be based on something, some IP. You know, so uh, maybe if there were a book. And so based on that, I looked, I, I checked if has there been a book written uh, for uh, the general public on this? And, and sure enough, there hadn't been. I, I thought maybe that's because there hasn't been enough. Uh, the, the men didn't come back with, with enough primary sources to base a book on. And the more I looked, uh, the, the more untrue that became. In fact, it was one of the uh, most well-documented expeditions of the, uh, of the era. And so it, it was a historian's dream uh, to have just such a great story and so much material to tell it with. Yeah, yeah. It, it really is a wild story. It's, it's almost hard to believe at points. So this expedition was initially a pretty fanciful idea. It was the brainchild of a young man who was the citizen of a country that had very little in the way of nautical history, right? Yeah, yeah. His name was uh, Adrien de Jarlache. Uh, he was a uh, Belgian aristocrat, uh, and in his mid-20s, well, he, he grew up in love with the sea, which, as you, as you mentioned, is an unusual fixation for a young man growing up in Belgium because they, the country um, had only 40 miles of coastline and no maritime tradition to speak of. Um, it, you know, once they'd separated from the Netherlands in 1830, Holland basically assumed all of the maritime roles uh, that had uh, and, and left Belgium with uh, with very little in that respect. And so they didn't have a navy; they had uh, a bare bones merchant mar merchant marine. And so, nevertheless, Adrien de Jalache grew up making model ships and, and dreaming of the sea and uh, reading tales of seafaring adventure and exploration and at this point he was a he had served on many foreign ships as a deckhand and, and rose through the the very meager ranks of uh, the Bel Belgium maritime establishment to the extent that there was any and he wants to set out on his own he wants to lead his own uh, uh, adventure somewhere and at that time uh, the geographical societies of the western world uh, had met and uh, agreed that if there was one region on earth that needed to be explored most urgently, that was Antarctica. And so he decided, as all the other kind of sea, great seafaring nations are trying to come up with the funding for uh, an elaborate, ambitious expedition, he thinks, well, why couldn't it be me? Why not Belgium? Why not me? And um, turns out there, there were many reasons why Belgium was maybe not the best place to uh, kick off an, an, uh, an Antarctic uh, expedition from. But he didn't let that stop him. He didn't let the uh, difficulties in raising money stop him, nor the difficulties in finding qualified Belgian sailors stop him because, you know, he he found a certain number and had to fill out the ranks with uh, Norwegian sailors who had much more experience with the ice. He didn't let the fact that Belgian sailor, Belgian scientists were skeptical of the of, of the expedition. And uh, though a few expressed interest at first, by the time it actually left, they they figured uh, no, I'm, I'm, I don't trust that this is going to be well-run or well-funded. And so he had to find Eastern European scientists uh, and then couldn't find a Belgian doctor. So he had to find an American doctor. So by default, it became an international expedition. And um, that was a, a pretty remarkable achievement at, at that time in history, which was jingoistic and imperialistic. It, it was sort of a jingoistic frenzy that would lead to war pretty, within you know 20 years. And yet here he is, uh, launching an international expedition uh, and flying the fl planning to fly the flag of many nations over the Antarctic pack over the, the next frontier of human exploration. Uh, and I think that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it sure is. So as you've established, the Belgians didn't have a long maritime history, nor shipbuilders who could build a vessel that could withstand the harsh Antarctic weather. Where did he finally find 
an expedition-worthy ship? Well, he figured smartly that he, he'd, he'd had a lot of experience on board transatlantic ocean liners and a few, uh, a few harrowing experiences in uh, ships that uh, rounded the Cape, uh, Cape Horn. Um, so he was well-experienced but he did not have any experience of the ice. And that's a completely different kind of navigation. And so before setting out to Antarctica, he realized he needed to prepare himself. So he, he uh, arranged with a, uh, a ship owner who had a fleet of uh, whalers in Scandinavia to uh, tag along uh, for one hunting season. Uh, they, would hunt, they were hunting whale, whales and seals in the Arctic Circle or beyond the Arctic Circle. And it would double as also a, a scouting mission where he would try to see if there was a, a ship that was available for sale and that he could use to take to the other side of the world in Antarctica where the, the conditions were similar. And uh, the ship would also have to confront massive fields of ice. And um, it was during that trip that he first laid eyes on the Belgica. And it was the, the small, scrappy little ship, but he was really impressed with her nimbleness and the way she negotiated the ice and she could uh, she was even designed to be an ice breaker she would was you know fast enough and light enough to climb on top of of uh, of uh, flows and then with her weight fall back down on them and split them which is how um, ice breaking uh worked then and to an extent still now and she was not for sale but eventually uh through some savvy negotiation through an, uh, a norwegian intermediary he was able to uh, to get her and, and he refit uh, the ship. He uh, converted it to prepare her for an Antarctic winter and a, a few other things. But in, in any case, it's, it was a converted Norwegian whale ship that ended up taking uh, De Gerlach and his men to Antarctica. He felt a lot of pressure, uh, right, from his funders, the government. Oh, yeah. To make this a Belgian-centric expedition. And he was forced to take on an international crew. This had to have been frustrating for him. Well, yeah, again, as I mentioned, it was a, a period of you know nationalism and jingoism. And he had sold this, the way he was able to get uh, interest in, 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 this, uh, in this expedition, the way he was able to raise funds is by selling it as a, a national expedition that would, that would fly the Belgian flag to the ends of the earth, which you know Belgium, Belgium was still a, a young nation and uh, it was great PR for the country. And he also raised funds by organizing a national subscription, meaning people sent money, everybody from a, a mailman to a senator to a school teacher could send money to contribute to this expedition. So he felt beholden to all of them. He, he was representing his country as the commander of this expedition. He also had an illustrious, you know, he's, he was a member of an illustrious family. His father and grandfather were both decorated military officers. He, a great uncle, had been the, the first prime minister of Belgium. And so he was also uh, representing his family. And so the, the thing that he feared pro- possibly even more than the Antarctic and uh, the cruelties that it could visit on, uh, on the human body and soul was the humiliation that he was risking by, uh, by, by sailing down there. Um, and and uh, he, he feared failure, not because he feared death, but because he feared humiliation. So what were the goals of the expedition? What was the planned route? How long did they think they would be gone? He planned to have it be a, a two-year expedition. And the first year, he planned on getting, on, on getting to the Antarctic Peninsula, and, uh, which is the sort of finger-like appendage that you, that you see, almost like uh, that, that points towards the tip of South America. And he, he hoped to uh, explore that uh, with, from a scientific uh, perspective. This was going to be the first scientific expedition to Antarctica. And so he, he hoped to spend a, a good amount of time there with the scientists cataloging the, the flora and fauna, uh, the uh, meteorology, the, uh, the um, ocean temperatures, ocean depths, geology, uh, figure out what this, uh, what the Antarctic Andes, the, the, the great mountain chain of the uh, Antarctic Peninsula, what, whether that was predominantly granite or, uh, or basalt or, or what have you. So it was a really thorough scientific expedition. But then he also had an almost conflicting goal, which was to reach the South Magnetic Pole. It was a, um, an exploit that would have electrified the public. And so here, this, this is the conflict that, that ended up plaguing, you know, dooming the Belgica. Because if you want to do thorough scientific research, you want to take your time. 
you want to move slowly. Uh, you want to move uh, deliberately and 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 uh, and catalog things exhaustively. Otherwise, you you know you're not doing serious scientific work. Uh, on the other hand, if you want to reach a a high southern latitude in a short amount of time, you have to move very fast. And so he was not able to square that circle. And by the time he and and his shipmates and the scientists were done exploring the uh, Antarctic Peninsula, it was already getting very late and the winter sea ice was setting in. And so he tried to, to circumnavigate the the continent as fast as possible to get to the other side of the, the, the South Magnetic Pole was assumed to be south of Australia, so on the other side of the world. But the skirt of sea ice was uh, around the continent was growing, and it's that project seemed doomed. At that point, he had almost no money left, and he feared that he was going to have to go back to, to uh, Belgium with nothing to show for the first year of the, exp- of the expedition. And in late February, a terrible storm shattered the pack, the, uh, the pack ice of, of uh, the Bellingshausen Sea, and opened up a tantalizing lead of ice, an avenue to the south. And de Gerlache had a moment of truth. He, he thought, do I go back with my head low and uh, attempt to get more money for a second year of the expedition? Or do I risk it all and try to go south and see what happens? And uh, he chose the latter option and ended up uh, dooming the, the 19 men of the Belgica to, or at, at that point, there were 18 men. They'd already lost a man to suffer the the first winter antarctic winter uh, ever experienced by human beings so i'd love it if you could talk about roald amundsen yeah where he fits into all of this yeah he was he was 26 years old at the time um as i've mentioned he would go on to be an almost mythical uh viking-like hero in uh, in the field of polar exploration the uh, he would blazed through the Northwest Passage. uh, He would be the first to attain the South Pole. And the funny thing is, he, almost from the get-go, from the moment he was a teenager, he he imagined this destiny for himself and and worked deliberately to achieve it. So for him, the Belgica uh, was a a kind of a a training ground, an education. He was six foot two, almost 200 pounds of pure muscle. He was just, he he was uh, a figure out of myth. And while, while everybody else was suffering from uh, the lack of light, from depression, from uh, despair, from scurvy, uh, uh, from a, a mysterious polar malaise that seems to affect overwintering crews, from the lack of women, Amundsen, even though he was showing physical symptoms, did not consider it suffering. He saw it as growth. He saw it as a, uh, a step in the right direction. And so he ended up thriving. And it ended up uh, making him or turning him into the explorer that he became. So almost right off the bat, there were issues, uh, conflict between Belgian and Norwegian crew members. And the hierarchy was a little bit muddled, too. Yeah, uh, indeed. The, the Belgians on board were probably they were uh, rowdier, less disciplined and probably less qualified than the Norwegian sailors. Uh, possibly it's because they felt that this was a Belgian mission, and so they felt that, that they had priority over the, the Norwegians. And when, in fact, uh, that's not the case, right? Roald Amundsen was hired as the first mate. And so this was this kind of, this did muddle the hierarchy, and it led to some real anger, and uh, in, in some cases, to fisticuffs. Um, all, not between the Belgians and the Norwegians, but they all took it out on the Frenchmen. Uh, the the, uh, the Belgians uh, beat the uh, beat the, the tar out of the uh, the French cook and, and tempers boiled and uh, and eventually this all led to a near mutiny in uh, Punta Arenas where De Jarlach was uh, was confronted by a gun-toting Belgian sailor and uh, eventually it was by uh, a miracle there there the, the mutiny didn't go through but indeed I think that as inspiring as the international makeup of this expedition was, it was also a liability. And uh, it, it became deadly at one point because uh, during a biblical storm in the Drake Passage, or I believe in the Bransfield Strait, right before getting to Antarctica, there was a, 
the the Belgica was tossed like it had never been before on raging seas. And at one point, a man fell overboard, a Norwegian man fell overboard. But his shipmate who witnessed this accident ran to the helmsman who was Belgian and told him to turn the ship around. He wanted the, him to, to hove to and it, it didn't, um, he did, just didn't understand. So they tried to explain it through sign language. And eventually, I, I, I argue that this, this language barrier was, in that case, fatal. And we will be back after a brief break. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? We have returned. I, I find it so interesting. I mean, I, I can understand Belgium at the time not being able to find qualified crewmen or even scientists, but a doctor. <laughs> yeah. Um, his struggle to find a doctor. Yeah. W- would you talk about that? How Dr. Cook... Yeah, it it seemed to to be almost a cursed position. Um, At first, there was a a notable Belgian doctor who had signed on to this expedition. And it was believed that he was almost a Trojan horse for the Royal Belgian Geographical Society, that he was a spy for them, and that he would end up trying to to take command of the expedition away from Dujerlache. And uh, so Dujerlache didn't want, you know, any, any of that competition on board and eventually he was he was he shied away from confrontation so he had his father do the dirty work and smear him in the press and get him off of the uh, the ship uh, but then Dijalash was not able to find a replacement or, or rather he found several replacement all of which begged off at the last minute and um, he couldn't find any anybody else and so then he it was the choice was either to get to go to Antarctica without a physician on board or to hire a foreign doctor. And as it happened, he had an application that he had considered and dismissed before, a telegram from a certain Dr. Frederick Cook, a a larger than life, uh, already notorious uh, explorer uh, slash showman who lived in Brooklyn and had had applied for the position. And he said, well, it's either go with no doctor at all 
or go with Frederick Cook. And he did. And that ended up being the best decision that Dijerlash ever made. Yeah. Cook is such a complicated character. On the one hand, he's so competent. He's imaginative. He's incredibly smart, but he's almost too smart <laughs> for his own good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he is. He's, um, for, I'll give you, give you a few examples of what he did. Um, that when the, the uh, ship was ravaged with scurvy, he wondered what could be causing it. Um, and he, we, we, at that point, scurvy had already been supposedly cured. Uh, it, it had in the 19th century, uh, Lind, um, had for, for the Royal Navy had conducted the first clinical trials ever and determined that uh, scurvy could be cured with lemon juice, for example. And they also knew the sauerkraut and certain other foods could do it. And, and, uh, as the 19th century, it became common practice to take lemon juice on, on long ocean trips. And, uh, but by the 19th century, uh, when the steam engine had shortened the average length of a voyage, the British felt comfortable in, in replacing expensive lemons with cheap limes. And, and everybody, De Jarlash, had emulated the British strategy of bringing lime juice along and, and, and thinking that that would be enough to keep scurvy at bay. That wasn't at all the case. In fact, uh, bottled lime juice, in, in the bottling process, the vitamin C is destroyed. It's a very, uh, very delicate uh, compound. So Cook was wondering what can be done. Um, and he had lived in, or he had lived, he had, he had explored the north of Greenland and, and had lived among the Inuit for a while and noticed that even though they have no fresh fruit, they also didn't suffer from scurvy. And so he assumed that there was something in the Inuit diet of fresh meat that kept scurvy at bay. Uh, in retrospect, you would say pretty obvious, but uh, aboard the Belgica, it was, uh, the, the proposal was resisted. He said uh, that the... Um, expeditioners should eat almost exclusively raw or very rare penguin and seal and that that would that would cure the scurvy and he was absolutely right and so that was uh, that was something that that the, his medical education did not spell out that's not something that it, it did not prepare him for yet he always believed that the uh, wisdom of the inuit in uh, in polar matters was to be trusted much more than than modern science and in that respect he was right and another example of Cook's ingenuity is when, after months of darkness, uh, he saw his shipmates uh, atrophy, both uh, mentally and physically. He assumed that there was something uh, about sunlight that was essential to human well-being, and uh, that that sunlight was as crucial to to humans as it was to plants, for example. And so, since he couldn't bring, bring the Belgica to the sun because it was stuck fast in the ice. He wondered if he could bring light to the Belgica. And so he had his shipmates stand naked for uh, hours on end in front of a glowing fire and there, thereby invented the idea of light therapy, which is used routinely today to treat seasonal affective disorder and, and other kinds of depression. So he became a sun worshiper. And uh, even though that idea was, it was a pretty genius one and uh, led to modern phototherapy, Here's an example of how Cook's imagination somehow led him astray. He was so enamored with the sun and in awe of its power that he thought that ice itself could store light. He thought that after a sunny day, the ice glowed brighter than it did after a cloudy day. He conducted all sorts of experiments that he claimed uh, proved this, which is in fact a you know a complete nonsense. But um, he he was. At once a scientist and, and almost a uh, a religious nut, you know, and, and in his, the deity he believed in was the uh, was the sun. One of the more interesting friendships that is developed is between Cook and Amundsen. Yeah, Cook has a lot of experience, as you've said, in the Arctic Circle. Um, he traveled and lived with the Inuit. He came dressed in clothes that were far more suited to cold climates than the rest of his colleagues did. He could climb mountains, uh, icebergs, and, and Amundsen was in absolute awe of him. Absolutely. I find, this is one of the dynamics that made me want to write the book. 
and the, that I tried to to make the core of the story is the friendship between uh, Cook, who would end up becoming this notorious fraud uh, and this this punchline, and Amundsen, who ended up being hailed as as uh, as a godlike polar hero. And the fact that Amundsen learned so much from Cook and that uh, even as Cook was maligned, even as Cook ended up in Leavenworth prison for running a Ponzi scheme, even as his uh, his accomplishments were all cast into doubt, Amundsen always believed in him and spoke uh, spoke for him in the press and called him the greatest traveler he ever knew. And so that, there's it's so poignant to me. It's so touching the, the loyalty that uh, that Amundsen had for Cook for the rest of his life. De Gerlache was definitely an interesting character as well. He, he was such a skilled sailor, yeah. but as a commander and especially a disciplinarian, he left a lot to be desired. He did. Um, and he was, he was a shy boy growing up. He spent most of his time reading books and making model ships, as I mentioned. Um, he, was, he was a brilliant man. He was a, a, an excellent writer. And uh, this this often happens in in polar history, where you know the missions are led by people who are driven more by by romance than anything else. You think of uh, Robert Falcon Scott was a great poet as well um, and a great writer. And um, De Gerlache, you know th- that quality doesn't make somebody a, a a great charismatic leader. And De Gerlache indeed uh, was unable in, at key moments to assert his authority. And so that led to a near mutiny. It led to uh, a breakdown in discipline, and uh, it led his his second in command, a, a Belgian named uh, Georges Lecointe, to be much stricter and and take control of of, of the ship how best he, as best he could. So um, it does reflect poorly on De Gerlache in that sense. But I, I think that his his dream of getting to the Antarctic and of leading this scientific expo- expedition and of leading an international expedition, and, he, and especially perhaps of not claiming any territory for Belgium, making it a purely scientific endeavor. I think those are all admirable decisions. And I th- and uh, as I argue in at the end of the book, I believe that that led, that, that spirit uh, set the stage for the Antarctic Treaty uh, of uh, 1959, of which Belgium was a signatory, and which guaranteed that the Antarctic would be reserved uh, that military activity would be banned on the Antarctic, and that the Antarctic would be reserved as a uh, an area of peaceful scientific uh, international cooperation, and that in turn, it, with that geopolitical miracle, in turn led to uh, a similar uh, spirit of collaboration at the International Space Station, which will presumably inspire uh, future deep space exploration. So uh, I, I think perhaps. It's a bold claim, but I do believe that Adrien de Gerlache was at the uh, 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 is to be credited with, uh, at least in part, this uh, one of the greatest achievements in, in human history, which is this this uh, the fact that uh, there is a continent on which there has never been war. Hmm. Uh, w- would you mind telling the story of how they lost their first crew member in January of eighteen ninety eight? Yeah, it's uh, it's a really tragic story, and um, I read so many accounts of this. So many of the diaries mentioned this. It was a traumatic event for a lot of them, and it still brings a, a ball to my throat when I uh, when I read the last diary entry of the man you're you're talking about. His his name was uh, Carl Vinke, and um, he was a Norwegian. He had just turned twenty. He was a sailor beloved by all. He liked to take risks. He liked to climb the rigging. He liked and he liked to. Uh, work unsecured, uh, even, even if he was, uh, even during storms, he, he thrilled to the sound of storms, to the, the, uh, the movement of the ship during storms. Um, and he was at the helm on the night of January 22nd, when there was a terrible snowstorm and, uh, and the, the, the ocean became enraged and uh, icebergs were to the left and right of the ship. And it was a chaotic moment, and at one point, uh, the it, it, the deck was flooded with water because they had taken on too much coal, and coal had gotten stuck in the scuppers, which are the openings at the level of the deck from which seawater can escape if it crashes if a wave crashes over the gunwales, it escapes to the scuppers. But now it couldn't escape because coal had 
blocked uh, blocked it. And so his job, Amundsen had assigned uh, Vinca to unclog this scupper, and um, he, he wasn't able to do it uh, by standing within the uh, the the bulwark. So he tried to get at it from the outside, and uh, a wave as he was working, a wave washed over him. And he fell into the freezing, turgid waters of the Bransfield Strait. And it, the, the water, I assume, was uh, uh, probably, it couldn't, have, it couldn't have been colder than 30 degrees Fahrenheit because of the salinity. Uh, but it also couldn't have been warm, much warmer than that. And um, the, he was fast uh, receding from the ship. And in one of the most mind-bogglingly courageous actions that anybody took during this expedition or even in the in the heroic age of Antarctic exploration, Lequent, the captain of the ship, jumped in after him uh, and uh, risked his own life. He had him in his arms, and uh, Lequent was tethered to the ship, but the rocking of the ship was such that every time every time the the ship would rock the other direction and come back, they were hung at the end of this line as if they were hung in, from gallows. And eventually the the weight of Vinca with his water, waterlogged clothes was too much for Lequent to carry. And um, they they tried to throw him a line, but uh, eventually they looked to the side of the ship and they saw that he was lying on his back and foaming at the mouth and his face was dark and he had died. And uh, this was before they'd even made landfall in Antarctica. And uh, it, it cast a pall on the rest, on the rest, the rest of the expedition. Yeah, normally he would tie a rope around his waist, right? Well, the Amundsen would always have to remind him to tie a, a rope around himself, which is a common practice on ships even today. You know, when, during a uh, a storm, if there's no need to be walking around unfastened, you know, if you're if you're working on the outside of the ship, if you're leaning, if you have to lean over the ship during a storm, you need to be fastened. Um, and he was just a, a bit of a daredevil. Uh, he was washed away. He was he was really because he was you know, so uh, young and starry eyed and had such a, an, an effusive personality. Everybody really loved him. He was a great sailor. But but, uh, you know, he ended up being the first casualty of the Belgica. And they, they describe watching him uh, recede from the ship and sink. And uh, they kept looking until they could no longer see the yellow of his oilskin coat. So this decision that de Gerlache makes to push forward as winter approaches, he basically makes it alone, right? I mean, Amundsen definitely supports him for his own personal reasons, uh, dreams of glory. But the crew and the scientists on board especially are, are terrified of spending a winter in the oh, they were terrified. I, I wouldn't say that, that he made it alone. He made it, uh, he, he shook on it with, on this decision with the captain. The two of them agreed. Uh, and so the captain had his back, Lequent, the man who jumped in the water the, uh, after Vinca. But um, it was it was definitely de Gerlache's idea, and the scientists were petrified uh, at this prospect. Rightly so. They claimed that it was because they were worried about their uh, scientific collections, their specimens of penguins and seals and, and uh, microbial life or the, their geological samples would uh, be threatened and, and they would do no good if the ship were crushed by ice and sank to the bottom of the sea. So, but in fact, uh, they were afraid of, for their own lives. Uh, and and as, as I said, uh, they were right to be. And that, that became very clear in the months that followed. Do you think he, he committed a crime by forcing the ship south, knowing that there would likely be deaths? I don't think so. Uh, because he was not violating any contract. Um, death did ensue from, from this decision, but he justified it by, by arguing that during the storm that he took advantage of to uh, make his way into the ice, it is often a good idea to not remain at the fringes of the pack, of the pack ice uh, during storms. It's, you can seek shelter temporarily within the pack where the waves are not as as powerful, and uh, you don't run the risk of having, uh, you know, icebergs uh, thrown onto the uh, onto the ship or, or giant floes thrown into the ship by the storm-tossed seas. 
but he went way further into the pack than would be required if that were simply his motivation. So I don't think he committed a crime. That's an interesting question. I think everybody knew what they'd signed on to, that that danger was part of this expedition, and he can't be directly connected to the the death of his uh, best friend, for example, for which he felt a tremendous amount of guilt. But I don't think it was criminal guilt. I think it was uh, just a, a, a more of a, a moral thing. I mean, they were all really fortunate to survive, except his friend, of course. Um, but but they were constantly averting disaster. Yeah. You know, there's only so much they could do, really, um, because the ice was going to do what the ice was going to do. I try to treat the, the ice in my book like the antagonist, uh, like the either the white whale or the or the great white shark. There's something about about whiteness uh, that makes it even more terrifying, I guess, and makes it a mirror for all of our own fears. But uh, yes, they, the, many times the ice has started crushing the ship and let up at the last second. And, um, you know, there were also cases where Dujar Lodge, for example, fell through the ice and was only caught at the last second by Cook, who saved him from falling beneath the, the pack ice, which would have been a death sentence. Um, every step on the ice is, is a leap of faith. And so they, they had a year of not being able to trust the ground they walked on. And there were rats that had snuck aboard as well. Indeed. Yeah, that, was, that's, that added to uh, the maddening nature of this trip. Uh, that the the only creatures who seemed to be thriving were the rats who had uh, scurried along a line at the at the port of Punta Arenas and nested in the hold. And uh, throughout the Antarctic night, they they could be heard multiplying and and, uh, and and squeaking and scurrying to the point where it it felt to a lot of the men that the, the rats were scurrying in their own heads. De Gerlache was one of the few on board who refused to eat fresh meat. The penguin specifically disgusted him. And and the illness, the scurvy that followed for him, produced some questionable command decisions, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I asked his great uh, his grandson why de Gerlage refused to eat the penguin, uh, even though he knew it, Cook insisted that it would it would cure him of scurvy. And his grandson said, well, because it was revolting. Um, I, I, that might be part of it, but if he knew that it would save his life, surely he could have stomached it. Um, I think he didn't fully trust Cook. He didn't believe that Cook was, was right about it. And he probably believed that um, he had spent so much of his uh, countrymen's money in, in buying the best tin food possible that he felt he owed it to them to eat that food as opposed to uh, uh, abandoning it for for penguin. Um, so that could have been it. It could have been that he felt that uh, eating penguin was somehow uncivilized. But whatever the case, he did end up suffering uh, tremendously from his reluctance to eat it. And even when he when he was uh, at, at death's door and forced to eat it, uh, he could only keep it down if it were charred to within an inch of its life, uh, which, which um, as we now know, if you if you overcook meat, then uh, you you also disintegrate the, the vitamin C that's within it, and so he he ended up yes being very very sick in July and August, which would have been the the winter and the winter and spring sorry of uh, the uh, in uh, the southern hemisphere. He was uh, convinced that he was going to die, and decided that he was not going to pursue. The, uh, the the main goal of the uh, of the expedition, which was to reach the South Magnetic Pole, it, through voluminous correspondence, uh, he exchanged letters with his shipmates, which I always found to be noteworthy. That that uh, there was, even though they were, it was it was a small ship, a hundred feet long. They were writing letters to each other, and he he wrote letters about how Cook and Amundsen and Lequent should make their own way to the South Magnetic Pole. It was just it was, and and it it perplexed everybody, and also saddened everybody to see that he had uh, essentially given up, but he would redeem himself in, um, at, at the end, becoming a, a key part in the, in the strategy to break out of the ice. We will return momentarily. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. 
everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. What does penguin taste like? <laughs> um... Penguin, I tried uh, to find a way to eat penguin, and uh, unfortunately for me, but fortunately for penguins, they're protected uh, by the 1991 Madrid Protocol. Uh, so it's described in multiple uh, ways by the men uh, of the Belgica, um, and, and uh, all of them are, 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 each one is more unappetizing than the next. Uh, I think Cook describes it as, uh, let me see if I can find it here. Okay, here we go. Okay. Cook describes it as, uh, as, as so, quote, if it is possible to imagine a piece of beef, an odiferous codfish, and a canvas bag duck roasted in a pot with blood and cod liver oil for sauce, the illustration will be complete. Uh, so that, that was uh, pretty poetic and, and, and revolting. It, there's also other, you know, you can, you can draw from the descriptions of other explorers who have eaten it. Uh, James Clark Ross, the great British explorer of the uh, mid-19th century, uh, says the flesh is very dark and of a rank fishy flavor. And then meanwhile, the only person who seemed to, to like it at first was Roald Amundsen, who, who described it as the, you know, the best steaks you could hope for. Again, because he, he was almost masochistic in his pursuit of, uh, of glory. He, he, saw, he equated suffering with, uh, with accomplishment. And so I think that might explain it. It, it also might have pleased his Scandinavian palate. Um, but uh, in, in the end, because it had so many benefits to their health, they ended, the men ended up craving penguin. And as Cook and de Gerlache led the men in a plan to saw their way out of uh, a mile's worth of ice, to, to saw a canal for the ship to, uh, to uh, escape the pack ice, it was such a tremendous amount of work. It was it was uh, a feat of glacial engineering and required nonstop sawing from the men. And so these these men who were completely broken down by the winter built their bodies back, built their hope back, and ate six, seven, eight penguin steaks a day. And they became um, they described they, they grew. Cook says they started growing ponderous muscles. And it was just after this, this year of wallowing in depression and sickness, uh, all of a sudden, with hope comes a rebuilding of the, of the human body. It was, it's a really inspiring moment. So, yeah, 
they mostly survived the polar night, the Antarctic winter, basically hoping that once the summer hit, the sun would melt the ice and they would be able to break out. But, but that wasn't happening, and another winter was looming, uh, forcing them to take drastic action. Yeah, absolutely. Cook knew very well that his shipmates would not survive a second winter. And Dejrelash had no expectations that he would survive one either, but he also didn't think that there was anything he could do. And uh, Cook, this, this, this eternal optimist, this almost delusional optimist, said that, well, we need to try. And that's a very American uh, instinct of his, I think. And um, it's, you know, it reminds me of, uh, it reminds me of um, McMurphy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest when he uh, grabs the sink and he says he, he, he bets all the men that he can, he can pull the sink off of the floor and throw it uh, into the window and escape. And he says, well, damn it, I tried, you know? <laughs> so I think Cook had that same instinct. Um, and, and he, he amid, you know, his own cuckoo's nest. Um, and he tried a plan to, because he, as I mentioned, he was a sun worshiper. He thought that he would allow the sun to reach the bottom layers of the ice by digging uh, a trench and, uh, filling it with soot so that it would be blacker and, uh, and draw more uh, sunlight and some, and he expected that it would weaken along those lines that the ice would, that the heat of the sun would weaken the ice along those lines. But the, the, the physics of that plan were uh, ill-conceived. They were, it just was never going to work um, for reasons that I get to in the book. But uh, Dujralash, who at first thought it ludicrous, the, the idea that, that uh, there could be any way that the men could have a say in their own fate, he did a complete about face. And he says, well, Maybe that didn't work, but we can try something else. And so he, he proposed something even more ambitious to saw through, as I mentioned, a mile's worth of ice. And um, they had two, no, they had three old ice saws there, two of which they combined so that they, one, uh, one saw was six feet long, which was uh, necessary because the ice in many spots was that deep, uh, that thick. And working 24, uh, 24 hours a day, they they sawed and kept and as as the ice closed back up they kept on reopening their canal and it was a, it was a constant fight against the ice to keep this open and even just as they thought that they were going to break out the ice closes back up again the jaws that i that i described close back up and they started again i don't this is the, it's the climax of the book so i think uh i don't want to describe too much but Oh, that, that's all, fine. Yeah. All, all I want to all I want to say is that um, it was an epic battle battle between man and nature, it, 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 and for me, it was you know reading about it in the diaries. It was uh, it was akin to any you know the, the greatest adventure novels that that I've ever read. Yeah, and the uh, just when you think he's he's lost, he comes charging back. Yeah. You know what this reminds me of? Not to not to uh, compare it to another uh, movie, but um, actually to compare it to another movie. It, it reminds me of Han Solo at the end of uh, Star Wars, where he gives. You know, you think that he gives up, uh, that he's going to let the the rebellion have. Uh, you know, he's going to abandon the rebellion, let Luke do whatever he wants to do, and then at the very end, one of the greatest mov- moments in uh, in uh, in film history for me is when out of nowhere he comes in and uh, shoots Darth Vader. And I hope I'm not star, you know, spoiling Star Wars for you know three people out there, but um, that I remember as a child that that just gave me chills. That moment where the the antihero does the right thing and and does a complete uh, about face, and and so I felt that when I read uh, about what Dujarlash did uh, and how he took control of the ship in a way that he had never done before, and became the leader that he that he hadn't been until uh, until then. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a great moment for me. You know, I think in 200 episodes, this is the first reference to star Wars we've ever had on the show. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. How many Murphy references have you had? That's a first too. (laughs) (laughs) So there is a criminal element to the story as well. Yeah. In the, in the guise of Dr. Cook, (laughs) would you talk about what he did once he came back to America? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He um, carried out a, a number of expeditions afterwards, and then, and notably uh, the first 
a summiting of Mount Denali. He was he was uh, credited as the first man to get to the summit of of Denali, which was then called Mount McKinley. And he wrote a book about it, which sold very well. He wrote a and then he his next for his next uh, achievement, he uh, set out to reach the North Pole. And he announced it was announced in uh, 1909 that uh, September of 1909 that he had that he had gotten there the New York Herald uh, published his exclusive account of of the trip and he was feted around you know around the world that there was uh, parades in Brooklyn his in his native Brooklyn and Manhattan uh, people were serving the cook cocktail uh, in Chicago people were selling the cook hat which was a big rounded white dome for women and and he was he was uh, you know celebrated worldwide very shortly after uh, his Arch rival Robert Peary, or rather allies of his arch rival, demonstrated that it was extremely unlikely that Cook had actually gotten there, and Cook was unable to provide definitive evidence of it. And so, uh, while I wouldn't say that's a crime, it definitely pegged him as a fraud, which was an encapsulation that he would uh, end up confirming when three years later, or sorry, 10 years later, he tried to remake his life as an oil man uh, during the uh, Texas oil boom. And he ended up using his fame, or rather his infamy, uh, as a way to drum up interest in a number of defunct oil concerns. And um, it's a bit like the, I guess, the the uh, mortgage crisis, where you know the idea was is if you get a bunch of of bad assets together, maybe somehow something good will come of that. And that's what that's what he did. He 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 sold stock in these uh, in in this uh, the. It was called the Petroleum Producers Association, and uh, uh, in the marketing materials that he wrote were, you know, he would talk about his experiences as a polar explorer that somehow qualified qualified him as a geologist, and he knew that these would produce some oil and that they would strike a gusher soon, and he promised uh, great wealth, Rockefeller level wealth, and um, got a lot of people to sign on to this, and in, and uh, in order in order to pay dividends to the stock that he was selling. Uh, because he hadn't actually struck uh, oil yet, he sold dividends from the sale of more stock. So uh, your listeners may at, at this point be uh, telling themselves that sounds exactly like a Ponzi scheme. And yes, it was. Uh, so he was sentenced to 14 years in Leavenworth, uh, both for running a Ponzi scheme, but also for these uh, uh, deceptive marketing materials. And that was a pretty uh, harsh uh, sentence compared to several other people were doing this kind of thing. At that time, there was in the wildcatting era, um, and I think it was in proportion to his fame and uh, almost as much about the oil as it was about the the deception regarding the North Pole. Um, but in jail, once again, once when, once he was imprisoned, he um, showed his his uh, beneficial side and, and his 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 genius, and his fellow inmates were suffering. Also, he noticed from from scurvy, much as as his shipmates had in in Antarctica, um, they were also uh, psychologically destabilized as they had been in Antarctica, and uh, it, it, he ended up having the same magnetic effect, the same soothing uh, effect in uh, in jail in prison as he did in Antarctica. And as in Antarctica, where he was the most popular man aboard, he was the most popular man in Leavenworth. We have talked about Leavenworth Prison in the 1920s on this podcast before. I, I think Carl Pansram uh, comes a little later, doesn't he? No, he was a contemporary. Oh, a contemporary. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no, he, I think um, they didn't overlap the entire time, but uh, his he was a contemporary. I don't know that uh, there, there's no record of them having interacted, but they were there at the same time. And Carl Pansram, uh, as, as I'm sure your, your uh, listeners know, was uh, just one of the most wicked serial killers the country ever birthed. But his um, cook's friend and protector there um, was a, a bootlegger named Big Til- Tim Murphy, big Chicago bootlegger, um, who who showed uh, who showed Cook the ropes and uh, and uh, ended up being his, uh, as I say, his protector. This North Pole expedition that he mounted was pretty suspicious, all the way around. He didn't even tell anyone that he was doing it. Oh yeah, well, secrecy surrounds these things. Uh, surrounds uh, polar ex- exploration, and uh, because of that, it also means that you can you, there, uh, lies also uh, 
are are rampant because you know if you start telling people you're gonna you're gonna vie for the North Pole, a bunch of other people are gonna try to beat you to it. Uh, but because typically you're the only one there, or you're surrounded by uh, you're, you're you're aided by people who don't necessarily have great navigational skills or know how to use a sextant, there's also no way it's it's ultimately unverifiable, uh, or or rather it's difficult to verify, which means it's easy to lie about. So I think that Cook got somewhat close, and ra- and here I'm depending on the research done by a a historian named Robert M. Bryce, who wrote a book called Cook and Peary, The, the Polar Controversy Resolved. And uh, he examines the record. He looks at, at uh, um, Cook's some of Cook's photos and Cook's notebooks and determines that Cook didn't get much closer than 400 miles to the pole. Uh, there are still some Cook truthers out there, as there are in many other walks of American life. There are people who will believe despite the evidence. And it's not, it, you, you, we can't say for sure that he didn't get there, but... Uh, it's it's very likely that that uh, that he did. But there are also people out there who question Robert Perry's claim, right? Absolutely, absolutely. The, the National Geographic Society backed his claim in the uh, you know shortly after it was made in the uh, in 1909 that Robert Perry, who was as a, a Cook's arch rival, who also claimed to have gotten to the pole uh, shortly after him. Then in 1980, in the 1980s, uh, the National Geographic Society looked at newly class- declassified documents or newly released uh, archives, rather, and determined that Perry almost certainly uh, falsified his attainment of the pole as well. And uh, the interesting thing uh, about that is that if neither Cook nor Perry got to the pole as they claimed they had, then the first man to get to the North Pole was one Roald Amundsen. He got there on a, uh, a dirigible. Absolutely. Um, so he didn't. He he didn't um, sledge there as he had to the South Pole. But nevertheless, uh, the the first uh, verified attainment. He, he didn't set foot there, but he did drop a flag, drop a Norwegian flag on the North Pole. So um, the first verified attainment of the pole is Amundsen. There's also a claim by uh, Admiral uh, Admiral Byrd, uh, who two days before uh, Cook, uh, the Amundsen's dirigible got there, claimed to have flown over the pole. Uh, but once again, uh, there are doubts about that. And it was proven pretty thoroughly, right, that he lied about being the first to climb Denali. Oh, Denali, absolutely. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. Once once uh, people had sort of cast a doubt on, on Cook's North Pole achievement, then uh, Peary and his allies looked back through some of, of his other achievements and found that the mountaineer with uh, with whom Cook climbed Denali, that that mountaineer claimed that they that they didn't get uh, anywhere close to the summit, and that the photo that appeared to be a photo of the summit was a, a, a much lower part of the mountain and, and uh, known as a false peak, and so he uh, that was uh, another classic Cook deception. So did he survive prison? He did. Um, he was nearly blind in one eye. Um, he had lost his, his uh, voluminous hair. Um, he was a, a broken man and never really found gainful employment again. But uh, he had, he had uh, a number of loyal friends, in, including uh, Roald Amundsen. Uh, but Roald Amundsen had uh, died when he was in prison. So no, he, did, he couldn't depend on on Amundsen's friendship uh, after leaving jail, but he did. Uh, he it was a, it was a sad last ten years of his life. But at the on his deathbed, he received word that Franklin Roosevelt pardoned him for the uh, the the crime for which he was he was sentenced to Leavenworth. And so his uh, some of the last recorded words of of uh, Frederick Cook are "Thank you" uh, after he heard that. Amundsen visited him in prison and was one of the few that really stuck by him. Yeah, right? it's, it was, that's, that's what I begin and end the book with. Um, it's, it's just such a um, touching moment when the great hero and the great antihero meet, and uh, Amundsen was the only person to visit Cook in, in prison, the only person that Cook allowed to visit him in prison. And um, uh, Amundsen, who was then preparing for another expedition and doing a big promotional tour for it, um, and, and had stopped by the American Midwest, uh, decided to, to pay tribute to his former mentor. Wow. Huh. 
So your book uh, just came out recently. Yeah, it came out on Tuesday the 4th, yeah. And so, yeah, this is, it's uh, my first book. Um, and um, the, uh, hopefully the, the, the movie that I wanted my friend to make out of it will, uh, you know, hopefully now, now at least he's got no excuse. There's a book. And people can reach you, I believe, on Twitter, right? Yep, I'm at at Sancton, so J S A N C T O N, and that's also my Instagram handle. Um, and I'm not on TikTok. Well, well, thank you for your time. This has been so much fun. Thanks for yours, and thank, thanks for uh, you know uh, letting me discuss the book. Uh, it's it's uh, it's just a remarkable adventure, and it had been ignored by history for 120 years. So. I'm glad it's getting some attention. Again, I have been speaking to Julian Sankton. His book is called Madhouse at the End of the Earth, The Belgica's Journey into the Dark Antarctic Night. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Riminis, and have a safe tomorrow. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.